I'm Megan Reedy, a program officer with the Maine Humanities Council. On the third Saturday in October each year, the Maine Humanities Council Schwartz Forum brings people together with expert guides to grapple with a really big question. In 2017, the question we asked was, how can we know? Because it's a question that arises for each of us, for all of us, every single day. We started out thinking about doubt, we ventured forward into curiosity, and we finished the day with trust. One of the most exciting things about asking this question was getting to really talk with people, all sorts of people, about how this crazy big question, how can we know, arises for them in the work that they do. I'm here with Doug Hitchcock at Gilsland Farm. We manage it as a wildlife sanctuary, so... Naturalist, a person who studies nature, and especially plants and animals as they live in nature. So what do you do as the naturalist? Interpret nature in so many ways, you know, make it accessible for more and more people, so... The question at the heart of the Dorothy Schwartz Forum for 2017 is, how can we know? And I went to talk to Doug to see how this question shows up in his work, and how he looks for answers when it does. People call Doug every single day to ask him about birds. I still get phone calls all the time of people saying like, wow, I've got this bird in my yard. My book says that it shouldn't even be in New England. So we talked about birds. In particular, we talked about red-bellied woodpeckers because people in Maine are noticing them. They're in a family called Melanerpsis woodpeckers, which have this really loud, burry call. So they, they usually give away their presence. And, and they've been on the increase in Maine. People are noticing this change, especially because they come to people's bird feeders a lot. People are noticing. We're seeing. But how can we know that red-bellied woodpeckers are expanding their range? One way is to collect as many people's individual seeing as possible. A way that we can try to get people involved is through what's called citizen science work. Um, Think of it like crowdsourcing information. Crowdsourcing information about birds started long before computers or the internet with events like Maine's annual loon count. The loon count is a a great example. It just actually happened a couple uh, weekends ago. The idea is to get this, this one snapshot in time of... Where are loons? Where are the breeding loons in Maine? What lakes are they on? How many? There's hundreds of lakes across the state, and it would be impossible for our one biologist to survey all those lakes. So to be able to coordinate volunteers to you know, go out on the, the same day, the same morning, survey their ponds, and report all that information back, you can do some you know, far-reaching, deep-impact scientific work, again, with just one biologist on, on the case. And, you know, Biologists can do this kind of work because all those volunteers are out there, noticing, sharing what they see. And for a couple of weeks in December, people all over the world are out noticing birds for the annual Christmas bird count, which gives us an annual snapshot of where birds are globally. It's been going on a little over 100 years now. The idea with that is to count every individual bird you see within this little little sector that you're given. And now, of course, there's also a website, ebird.org. 
eBird uh, was started by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology um, in the last 10 years. It was getting more popular, and really in the last five years, I'll say now the majority of, of birders are really using it, and it's now um, worldwide. You can submit lists anywhere, anytime, thousands of records submitted, you know, just for Maine. They've got, gosh, I think they've cracked a billion individual records, but it's, as I said, it's worldwide, this huge data set that really makes it quite valuable. Why is a big data set valuable? On the one hand, a big data set, a big collection of people's individual acts of seeing, their sightings, is what allows biologists to see patterns. It's quite often that culmination of data. So you want to do this for long periods of time. You know, I think the Loon Project is, well, it's been going on for decades, I'll say. And, and it's really that long-term data where you're going to start to be able to identify trends. And on the other hand, the more sightings there are in the collection, the less it matters that every now and then one of us sees something poorly, makes a mistake, misidentifies a bird. Inherently, like, th- there's errors, there's flaws within that. You know, one way to think of it is it's never going to be perfect. As a quick example, like, eastern bluebirds are one that um, we're seeing more and more of them starting to overwinter in Maine. Early 90s were when bluebirds were, were starting to show up in the ones and twos, um, then three, four, five, and, and it's gotten to the point where we're now into the hundreds. I think last winter there were, it was over 400 eastern bluebirds that were counted. And there, you know, even if we're missing 10 birds in one sector, um, we've still identified, you know, that there's, there's this dramatic change going on. Back to those woodpeckers. When Doug went to find answers about red-bellied woodpeckers, he went first to eBird. I went into eBird. I said, show me that frequency chart. Again, the percentage of checklists that include red-bellied woodpeckers as they're reported throughout the year. And this chart is incredibly messy, but what you see is that with each year, that frequency is getting higher and higher. Doug explained to me that in 2010, red-bellied woodpeckers rarely showed up at all. Frequency was often zero and peaked at between 2 and 4%. By 2015... Frequency had risen to about 12% throughout the year. eBird uses frequency, percentage of checklists rather than the total number of birds, as a way of reducing the chance of counting more birds simply because more people submitted bird counts. With a percentage, it doesn't matter how many checklists there are. But what if just five years doesn't seem like enough to show a real trend? If you're a skeptic of that, you say, you know, well, it's it's too modern, can't be good. We can look at Christmas bird count data. That's the data set that goes back, I think 1900 was the, the first year Frank Chapman did a Christmas count. You see this really dramatic change um, as early as uh, the 90s. There were, you know, one or two being seen, but it was in around 2004, 2005, that winter, that all of a sudden there were dozens reported in, of red-bellied woodpeckers reported in Maine. So when people say, whoa, there's a new bird in my yard, that act of noticing is supported by thousands of other people's noticing all over Maine for over a hundred years. That's data. And that data shows that red-bellied woodpeckers are expanding their range, have already expanded their range northward into Maine. The next question is, why? 
knowing that there's been this change in their range, some biologists, some people who, you know, really uh, know how to look at, uh, look at these populations decided to compare modern day red-bellied woodpeckers to red-bellied woodpeckers. What they used were birds from 1950 or earlier. These biologists went to museums and looked at actual birds, at specimens. And the first thing they noticed was that red-bellied woodpeckers follow Bergman's rule. We happened to be sitting in a room full of specimens as we talked, with hordes of schoolchildren filing by outside the door. Bergman's rule is this eco-geographical principle that says, across a species range, the further north you go or the colder the climate, the more mass that species is going to have. They just they need more mass if they're going to survive in a colder area. So now the snapshot of red-bellied woodpeckers around 1950 has extra detail. So we knew that there were smaller ones, you know, down in Florida versus the larger red-bellied woodpeckers up in New Jersey. Florida to New Jersey was the total range of red-bellied woodpeckers in 1950, and it's in New Jersey where we get to see the final twist. Not only has their range shifted, so has their mass. Looking in New Jersey, where they used to have these, the northernmost red-bellied woodpeckers, the red-bellied woodpeckers that were there in 1950 had more mass than the ones that are there now. The only way that you can have the same species occurring in the same area with less mass is if the climate has gotten warmer there. Because there's no incentive for a bird to maintain extra mass if that bird doesn't need it. Exactly. That's, you know, a a great example Mm -hmm. of where people can, you know, literally look in their backyards and when they see that red-bellied woodpecker in their backyard, really only one good explanation for why they're here now and weren't before. So how can Doug know that red-bellied woodpeckers are moving north and that climate change is what's enabling that move? One of Maine Audubon's big missions is to have a science-based approach to everything we do. Our goal is to use real scientific information to make the best decisions that are going to benefit those species. Mm-hmm. And citizen science work is, is one of those best ways to gather that information and really make an informed decision and not let emotion come into play. When I hear him say this, I think how all those people, all of us really paying attention, really looking, really noticing, were at the center of it all. And when I think back, I realize that not once did Doug suggest that his work would ever be done. Every year, the main loon count takes yet another snapshot of where the breeding loons are. Every year, during the Christmas bird count, we get an updated picture of which birds are where all over the world. And every day, people looking at birds are sharing what they see through eBird. Biologists are seeing how it might fit together now. Or now? How about now? Knowing things about birds is never over. It's a process. And a practice. You can find out more about how to get involved with Maine Audubon citizen science projects and all the other great things they do at maineaudubon.org. To see and hear more about the 2017 forum on the question, how can we know, and to find out about what's in store for the current year, go to mainhumanities.org.
Humanities on Demand is produced and edited by Ian Watkins. Original music in this episode is by Steve Coombs, with field recordings by the Loon Preservation Committee, Samuel Corwin, and Scott Gravett. Humanities on Demand is available on the Maine Humanities Council's website and on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe now!